baby, you are gonna go broke showing turkeys like these. It's turkey time. Come on, come on. Hey everybody, Movie Miss here. Just wanted to let you know that this is part one of two parts for the movie Mortal Kombat. Uh, turns out we went a little bit long discussing this one. I don't know. I think you'll be all the better for it. <laughs> You're welcome. So please enjoy part one and be sure to stay tuned next week for part two, wrapping up Mortal Kombat. Enjoy! Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Let's Talk Turkeys. I'm your host, Movie Miss, and I'm being joined today by my co-host, Drive-In Dave. Hello, sir. Hello. Greetings and salutations. <laughs> You're in a good mood today. Would it have anything to do with the movie we're covering? Oh, I'm so excited. I mean, the only word I can use for this is flawless. Yes, we are covering Mortal Kombat from 1995, the quote unquote original, because there's been a lot and there will be more. And we'll talk about that later. In each of us, there burns the fury of a warrior. In every generation, a few are chosen to prove it. One of you three will decide the outcome of the tournament. Three strangers. We'll travel to the mystical realm of Outworld to defend our people against Shang Tsung. You will and his forces of darkness in an ancient tournament. One more victory. Your soul is mine. And our world. This had a Rotten Tomato critic score of 54%, which makes it a turkey on our radar. It had audience love of 86, and you and I both love this movie. <laughs> I, I've loved this movie. I mean, I literally saw this when I was a kid. Me and my buddies went to, my mom dropped us all off, went to the theater, saw it, freaking loved it. We were excited before it even came out because we were all Mortal Kombat fans. So yeah, I was in my early 20s and we, a whole group of us went to the movies to see it. And I remember distinctly, and I think that's why I love this movie to this day, get chills. I got chills as soon as this, this movie starts and they yell Mortal Kombat and then the music just kicks in and oh. I just get chills. When I was doing the research, uh, something popped up that made total sense. The soundtrack to this movie is like one of my top all-time favorite soundtracks. 
And they said this was the only, well, not the only, but this was the very first EDM soundtrack to ever go platinum. I'm not surprised by that because I ran right out after the movie and bought it on CD and still own it to this day. <laughs> oh, I do too. I mean, there, there's bands that uh, I discovered from this that I was, I mean, this is my first uh, experience to typo negative. I'd never heard typo negative until this time. KMFDM. I mean, there's some bands in here that it was like, oh, wow, these guys are just like freaking amazing. Yeah, it's it's an amazing soundtrack. And the movie itself, I laughed because I looked it up. It's an hour, 41 minutes, and it's only PG-13. I thought for some reason it was R. It's not. And I, I usually don't read these, but I read when the banner comes up and it says the rating and then it gives a description why it was rated that way. Have you ever stopped to read those ever at the front of a movie? Sometimes I have like very like uh, uh, me and the girlfriend just watched a couple of days ago um, Grown Ups because we both love those movies. And I saw the little thing where it said like brief nudity and stuff like that. And I was trying to figure out well, where the hell is the brief nudity at? Well, what cracks me up is if you, you make it a habit now just for fun when you're watching movies to just take a second and read those because sometimes the wording is ludicrous. They come up with words that are so funny that aren't the typical nudity violence language sometimes they'll throw in a sentence of something bizarre and it's so funny when you catch those but this one just says non-stop martial arts action and some violence that's the reason it's pg-13 and i was like i remember this movie because i haven't seen it in a long time being super gory and bloody it's really not <laughs> it's really not no, I, I don't. I never remembered it being bloody or gory at all, because I remember that was the number one issue we all had as kids being Mortal Kombat fans. We were like, OK, where is the where are the fatalities? You were waiting for a fatality and you yeah. never got one. You're like, you know, come on, guys, this is Mortal Kombat. So supposedly uh, this was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, who also in, in horror and action world, which I love, he's known for doing Event Horizon. Resident Evil, AVP, Alien vs. Predator, and Death Race, among just, you know, many. Um, but he went to the ratings board and I guess got into a back and forth with them about the rating for this movie. And this was before they even had submitted it. And he found out the criteria to get an R rating. And they said, well, we'll give you PG-13 if you don't show any gruesome human deaths. You can show non-human all you want, but no gruesome human deaths. So that's why in this movie, the humans lose a fight and they just basically fall down and lay there like a dead fish. And then Shang Tsung takes their soul. There's no gruesome human deaths, but yet, you know, CGI or non-humans can fall on spikes and whatever else. That's why the ratings board said, uh-uh. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Like I said, as a Mortal Kombat fan, you wanted the human deaths. You, you wanted that. Would that have been rated of... R. Yeah, I mean, like, that's kind of what made the reboot, uh, well, I'll just say remake because it wasn't really reboot, but the, the remake so cool was you got your fatalities finally. Yeah. So, so this, this one, written by Kevin Droney, he had a few TV credits. He did three episodes of Highlander. Um, and then his only other movie he wrote that I saw was Wing Commander in 99. <laughs> and if you know anything about that one, that is a notorious flop. <laughs> I've never seen it, but it is, it's one of those movies, like there's a couple of movies that I know just off of reputation alone. Yep. 
So I went to the movies to see that with my younger sister because she was obsessed with Matthew Lillard since the moment he ever did anything. And we were the only people in the theater. (laughs) Yeah, it was bad. Wing Commander's bad. So this one had a budget of 20 million and it went on to make 122.2, which is why they fast-tracked the sequel, which we'll get to later. Uh, This was filmed in Thailand and California. All the Thailand stuff, gorgeous. Like I so want to be in this movie half the time. (laughs) Just not fighting Goro. (laughs) Yeah, no, no no one wants to fight Goro. Uh, They made the island feel kind of like the island like from Mortal Kombat a little bit. Yes, for sure. And I was like, maybe that's Hawaii, but no, Thailand. A couple of little notes here before we start. Sonia fights Kano on the beach. And apparently they had to film that at the very end of the whole shoot before they wrapped because Bridget Wilson plays Sonya Blade. She had to wrap filming uh, whatever she was doing and literally fly, I think it was Billy Madison, fly the next day out to this movie because she was cast last minute as a replacement for Cameron Diaz. Did you know that was a thing? Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up. Um, I I saw the same thing because I saw that she wanted to do it, but like scheduling conflict, she couldn't do it. And so they were going to go. I thought they said they wanted like, oh, who was it? There was another actress they wanted. She escapes my mind at the moment. And then they couldn't get her. And then they got Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz. I thought she broke her wrist during yeah, training. Yeah, during training, she she broke her wrist uh, or, or injured it so much that she couldn't continue. So they went with their next choice who was available, which, like I said, she had to hop on a plane and immediately go the next day to start shooting. So they had to make sure they had enough time to train with her so she would look believable in a fight. So they ended up pushing back the Sonia Kano fight to the end. And I will say, I like her just fine in this. She's not my favorite, but her fighting, you can tell. Once you know that bit of trivia... You can tell she's the least trained of all of them, unfortunately. It, it makes sense because, yeah, watching it again, like like I was not a fan of her fighting. I, I thought Talisa Soto did a much better job with the training. Now you know why. Yeah. Now, as far as Sonia goes, I love her look as Sonia. I mean, I actually, this is another girl that growing up, I had a crush on her because she was just really, really pretty. But like as far as the character of Sonia in this, eh, they could have done better. Yeah, the writing for sure. They didn't give her much of a personality. No. She's very one-dimensional. It's like, I'm a badass and I'm on revenge. That's it. Very one-dimensional. Okay, so another note I had was Goro, the big giant four-armed beast that they a lot of them have to fight. Uh, apparently, he kept malfunctioning. So I'm getting mad Jaws vibes here. <laughs> the shark is not working. So he's a stop motion. um, I mean, uh, they wanted to do stop motion and they said, no, we can, we can do it. We can build an animatronic, you know, puppet thing that'll work. And it kept not working. So there's only a few shots where you see him in all his glory actually working. A lot of the shots are close up because they could only get the top part of him to work correctly. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I was always curious how they did that because like the way he moved around, I was wondering, was it like a person? And then they put like a harness on. So it was completely. It was a built animatronic thing. Yeah. But it was very rough, as you can tell by watching the movie, (laughs) sadly. As much as I like this Goro growing up, uh, the one thing I really, really appreciated about the remake was 
and I know you're not a big fan of the digital effects, I thought Goro was much better done in the remake. I thought this was one of those characters that you needed digital effects for. I actually would agree with you on that. Um, simply because this one, yeah, he is so rudimentary. You can tell they're in the early stages of doing the animatronic stuff just overall. And yeah, it's not the best look. So then the last note I have, a lot of the lines that were Johnny Cage were ad-libbed because he was so quick and funny with coming up with stuff that would make everybody laugh that they'd go, let's run again. And they'd shoot again and let him throw in his, his ad-lib line. And so like the $500 sunglasses asshole line is ad-libbed. At the docks, when when he says, I'm glad I didn't ask him to park the car, ad-libbed. So apparently that was a thing with this actor. He's pretty funny and witty, I guess, <laughs> in real life. <laughs> it, it works. I mean, I it's actually one of the things I was going to bring up later on, but we can discuss it now, was um, originally the, the role was offered to Jean-Claude Van Damme to play Johnny Cage, <laughs> and, which is oh. hilarious because he turned it down and is like, when Mortal Kombat was created, Johnny Cage in the game was supposed to be Jean-Claude Van Damme. Get out of here. And they couldn't get him. So they created the character of Johnny Cage. I am so shocked by that. Is it Johnny Cage doesn't look like him, though, in the game? Uh, no, I think they had to, they had to change him a little bit, probably due to, you know, whatever. Well, plus also, you know, like the, the game was like it's actual actors, actual stunt performers that are screen captured or whatever. So. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that, that's, that's okay. what made the game so cool, was that it was like real people. So it's like, that's cool. It's like Jean-Claude Van Damme didn't do it. And so you got, again, a guy that I cannot picture anybody else playing Johnny Cage. But right? I believe his name is Lyndon Ashby. Uh, yes. He was amazing. I mean, he's like one of the reasons I loved this movie so much was because he was hilarious. He was just so great as Johnny Cage. Well, it's kind of funny with the whole wanting him for Mortal Kombat for Jean-Claude, because right before this, he did Street Fighter in 94 so he was probably probably inked that deal over mortal Kombat. he maybe had to choose so that's interesting uh, and which is great because it's like he would have sucked as johnny cage and he went on to suck his guile so oh my god i know but that movie's so fun it has it's it's more fun than it has any right to be so we've mentioned a few let's jump to it top build cast we have christopher lambert robin shu lyndon ashby carrie hiroyuki tagawa <laughs> That's how I pronounce it, Tagawa. I apologize, sir, if I butchered your name. And Bridget Wilson, who is now Bridget Wilson Sampras. Uh, apparently in 2002, 2002, I believe, she married Pete Sampras. And they have two kids and they're still married to this day. And he went on to win the U.S. Open. He's a U.S. tennis player. So in a lot of things, she's credited as Bridget Wilson Sampras, but not in this. And then we also have a few others we can get to as we go. Talisa Soto, you mentioned as Katana. Such a good choice. And I'm a little sad that they didn't want to do a romance storyline in this movie because they were fired up to do the Liu Kang Katana romance and they didn't do it. That would have been nice. Um, I would have liked to seen that. I, I know like I have a love hate relationship with Katana in this movie because I love Katana in the games as well. And there's a lot of aspects to the character we did not get to see. Obviously her famous fans. I wanted to see that so bad. Yeah, she's uh, super underwritten in this because they put her character as a, they sidelined her basically until they needed her toward the end. All right, so IMDb plot. Three unknowing martial artists are summoned to a mysterious island to compete in a tournament whose outcome will decide the fate of the world. Ooh. <laughs> Sign me up. That seems a little <laughs> underwhelming, but okay. <laughs> 
No, I like that fate of the world. Yes. Stakes. All right. So our movie begins, like I said, the yelling Mortal Kombat. And then we see the studio logo and then the music starts and it's this amazing upbeat techno music where you just get goosebumps and you're like, here we go. <laughs> I love even, it. Even you got that, like watching it, you you got up off of the couch and you started shaking it to the to the music. You started doing a, a little, little bit, choo, 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 choo. a little bit. Yep. 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 Doing the white girl dance. <laughs> um, <laughs> I always <laughs> I always think of uh, Chevy Chase in vacation when he's holding the sandwich and he's dancing and he's flinging the sandwich from side to side trying to impress Christy Brinkley. <laughs> That's my little my little white girl go to. <laughs> So the music is kicking in and we're getting credits and then we get title card and it's the flaming logo and it's really fucking cool. Then we fade in on two men and one looks very young fighting. The older man beats him real quick and then he's holding him and he turns to the camera and he says, your brother's soul is mine and you will be next. And the young boy yells, Lou, and then the older man, we assume, is killing the young guy. We don't see it. And then we see Liu Kang wake up from a nightmare. So he was dreaming all this. So Liu Kang, Robin Shu, reminded me so much. Minus, of course, the long hair. He did. He, if he would have cut his hair, Bruce Lee. I liked his, his body was very similar. His, uh, the way he moved and spoke reminded me of him. Man, did I get Bruce Lee vibes. Which is interesting because I read it. I don't know where it's at now. I'd have to go find it. But I know I saw it where uh, there's a lot of connections to the classic Bruce Lee movie, Enter the Dragon. Oh. And when you go back and you watch it. And if uh, like once I saw that and I watched this again, I was like, yeah, I can see there's a definite similarity to Enter the Dragon. So Liu Kang gets out of bed and he picks up a Western Union note that says Liu Kang, brother dead, return home, grandfather. And for those of you in the younger listening audience that don't know what a Western Union is, that's a telegram. Uh, it's like a text, only it's on paper and it took a lot longer to get there and cost more. <laughs> <laughs> so now we cut to some SWAT looking people led by a blonde woman in Hong Kong crashing an underground club situation here. And it's a simple setup of what she's about. She, she's leading a team. She looks tough. She looks like she knows what she's doing. The man behind her says perimeter is secure, calls her Sonia. So this is Sonia Blade. She responds by calling him Jax. And then she says she wants Kano. So we're getting just immediately. Here's Liu Kang. Here's his situation. And real quick, here's Sonia Blade. Here's her situation. They've got the big guns. They make their way through the crowd, slamming people out of their way. And I thought, that's funny. I'd get, you'd get punched if you're just coming through a crowd, pushing your way through. How does nobody punch this bitch? <laughs> Maybe because she's got the big gun. It's because they're all on drugs too. I mean, like if you go into a club like that, they're probably all like on some kind of, you know. Like, like a rave. Yeah, that's exactly what I got from it was this was this was a rave. So like everyone there is high and how most of them probably don't even realize these people are actually like exist right now. So we see Kano on a phone watching the club from above saying, okay, she's here. Kano is Trevor Goddard. And even though he, he's British, he reminds me of a poor man's Colin Farrell and he does okay. I preferred Kano in the newer version. 
I do too. But an interesting trivia thing, I did not even know this. In the game, Kano is Japanese-American. And so when they cast Trevor Goddard to play him, uh, they said the creators, uh, Ed Boon and John Tobias, were so impressed with his performance, they retconned the character to be Australian because they thought he was Australian. Yeah, he's he he plays the part well. He's an asshole, but he's that witty bad guy that you kind of root for. <laughs> yes, like I, I kind of feel like if you could have combined the new movie and this movie together, you'd have the perfect Mortal Kombat. And one of those combinations were if you could combine the look of Trevor and then the attitude of the new Kano, yeah. you'd have the perfect Kano. Agreed. So he turns his head and we can see that his right eye is covered with like a steel plate and there's a slit with a glowing red light where his eye would be. I'm not sure what that's about because I didn't play the game (laughs) back Uh, then. It's a cybernetic implant. Uh, I don't recall the origin of how he lost his eye, but I believe it had something to do with either Sonya or one of her team or something. Okay. And he's got a cybernetic implant. So maybe maybe it's from when he attacked her partner and killed her partner, because that's what she's about. She's bent on revenge to get Kano for killing her partner. Uh, like I said, one dimensional. She's tunnel vision, <laughs> what she's doing here. Which I've always been confused as to who her partner is. I mean, the Mortal Kombat junkie in me is like, okay, was it Stryker? Because we never got to see Stryker in this movie, but he doesn't show up until the third game anyways. Okay. Who, who could it have been? Because Jax is typically her partner. Hmm. And Jax is obviously alive. So who the hell yeah. did he kill? <laughs> So he's talking in this room to Mr. Shang Sung, who's sitting behind him. And that was Carrie he- Hiroyuki <laughs> <Hiroyuki> Tagawa. <laughs> and this guy, I didn't look up his IMDb, but he's been in a ton of stuff and he just looks like a bad guy. And he's so good as an actor. This was great casting. He really was. He uh, he was apparently like the first and only choice that they wanted for this role. And they said when he showed up to audition, he showed up in costume and stood up on a chair delivering his lines. And so it's like, and like in the game, he's ancient, he's old. So they changed the age of the character to fit him. And I was like, perfect. They did a yes. perfect casting. He, he's, he's so iconic as the character that in the last game, Mortal Kombat 11, they reused the look of the actor and the voice for Shang Tsung. I love that. So we see though that this Shang Tsung is the man from the opening of the film that was killing the young boy and talking to Liu Kang. So we know they're connected. Then we learn through their conversation that this was so weird to me. See this movie I love, but there's still some weird things to me. So explain this to me. We learn through their conversation that Shang Tsung wants Sonya Blade specifically at this tournament and he's using Kano as bait because Kano killed the partner and she's you know looking for Kano what is his obsession with Sonya because about three more times in this movie and I will point them out he makes weird sexual type references about Sonya what is the deal there do you know or is it just subtext I wasn't supposed to really pick up on (laughs) Honestly, that that's something that's confused me as well. And it really hit me this time around because it kind of got to me of like, okay, like even like when we get to the end of the, of the movie, like, okay, you could see maybe this is why he wanted her. But even then it's like, okay, why is he so hell bent on her being there? Like we'll get in later of like, basically if these three people do not come to the island, he easily like destroys this tournament and you know, like they went. So right. like, what, like, what the hell is the purpose of getting these three people on the damn island? Yeah. Why is he so obsessed with it? I know. So a man with a gun open fires on Sonia while she's standing in a crowd. <laughs> 
<laughs> Nobody gets hit. She shoots him and then runs up and asks, where's Kano? Okay, so we get what she's about, what Shang Tsung is about real quick. Now we cut to an abandoned looking warehouse in LA where a man in a suit with sunglasses goes in and approaches four men with weapons. And he simply says, let's dance. And the music kicks in and we get a really fun, brief fight scene between him and these four guys. It plays out using basic martial arts kicks and whatnot. And he basically kicks their asses. But the fourth guy fails to fall down at the end. And he's standing there looking at him blankly. And (laughs) the man goes, this is where you fall down. (laughs) And so the guy just flings himself onto the floor. And the man turns and he goes, where do you find these guys? And then we learn that this is Johnny Cage. And they're shooting a movie because the director yells cut. Uh, two two notes. Uh, one, I, I absolutely love the fact that we get within what could be considered a bad stereotypical action movie, them filming a bad stereotypical action movie. Yes, it's very meta. It is so awesome. I love that. And this is another cool trivia. This is something I did not know. And I, I would love to fact check, fact check it better. The director of this movie, in, like in the movie, if you've noticed, he looks a lot like Steven Spielberg. That is because they wanted Steven Spielberg and Spielberg himself is an avid gamer and Mortal Kombat fan, wanted to do a cameo in this movie. Oh, but he just couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. So they they got like a, a look like that. To me, when I learned about that, I was like, okay, I'm already a Spielberg fan. That just made the dude so much cooler. That's really funny. I did think that when I saw the guy, I'm like, this is like poor man, Steven Spielberg. What's going on here? (laughs) So Johnny Cage storms off going and the press says, I don't know how to do this stuff. (laughs) A man runs up to him and says, there's someone here to see you. So he goes over and sees someone sitting in his chair, holding a paper like a rag, like an inquirer that says, Johnny Cage is a fake. And I laugh every time because they show this, I think twice in the movie, the picture of Johnny Cage with his hands up and his face open like he's going, (laughs) it's so funny. Uh, you can you could definitely see he's a lot like they, they kind of treat him like Van Damme because I remember Van Damme used to get a lot of shit of like, oh, he's a terrible, you know, martial artist and everything. Right, right. He's a fake. So we learn that this is Master Boyd and he clearly knows Johnny, probably trained him in his martial arts, I'm guessing. Uh, he tells Johnny that if he goes to this tournament, he can prove to the world that he is, in fact, the real deal and not a fake. But to get there, he needs to be on the boat leaving Pier 40 in Hong Kong tomorrow. Now, (laughs) that's a 16-hour flight at least with time to get home and pack and, you know, whatever. And he has to be there by tomorrow. That's cutting it close, but okay. (laughs) I suppose. Yeah, but he's Johnny Cage. He can do anything he wants. Supposedly a big Hollywood star. He can probably take a private flight. So he hands him a scroll and we see that And when Johnny's holding it, it's got the Mortal Kombat symbol on it, the little dragon in the circle or whatever. And the man walks off and then we get a really, okay, some special effects in this movie are not good. This one was really good. He's walking and he transforms into Shang Tsung as he's walking. It looks pretty damn good. It was cool. It was one of the good special effects. The only issue I had with it was the actor before who played Master Boyd was walking a little stiffly, I thought, in into the transition. I kind of feel like, okay, did they do that so they can kind of get it filmed just right to put in the special effects? Probably, because I thought that too, but it worked. 
It was, it was almost like he was the Terminator or something. So we cut to the Temple of Light in China. And then we can see by this shot, this is the same temple that was in the opening of the movie where the man Shang Tsung is killing the boy. Same place. Temple of Light China, where Liu Kang is arriving. And this is a really weird thing that stuck out to me. And I'm going to point this out throughout the entire movie. So you're going to have to just bear with me. <laughs> Liu Kang flew from the U.S. to China because his brother died and he's got one duffel bag. Okay. So he arrives, sets his bag down. He runs up and greets his grandfather. And this looks like uh, it's a temple. So they look like uh, the men all the way down to the children are all wearing these red robes, like, like, like monks or something. I believe the temple of light is monks. So it would be like okay. a religious kind of order. Grandfather tells Lou after he left for America, his brother was training to prepare for the tournament. Lou calls the tournament nonsense. <laughs> Grandfather says to save the world is not nonsense. He was so adorable as the old man. <laughs> I know. So Lou is debating now. How can they all believe men fighting in a contest will decide the fate of the world? And just as he's going to be a little bitch about it, there's a gong that starts to sound and everyone runs in and gathers. And grandfather announces that Liu Kang is now the chosen one or is the chosen one. I shouldn't say now because his brother wasn't. A man shows up, accuses Liu Kang of leaving the temple in the first place because the tournament was too much responsibility. Vengeance against the man who killed your brother? So much simpler. <laughs> Vengeance is always easier. That's what we have to remember in this movie is it's all about vengeance, people. Grandfather sees the man's face clearly now and calls him Lord Raiden. And everybody bows and is like, ooh, in awe of him. Except Liu Kang, of course, still being a little bitch. Lord Raiden in this is Christopher Lambert. And even though I believe in the game, isn't Raiden Asian as well? Uh, yes, he is Asian. And that, in fact, that is one of the things that they said. The creators of the game, Ed Boon and John Tobias, were both very impressed with uh, Lambert's performance. And they could not see anybody else at the time playing him i'm 100 percent there um they give him that white hair and his robes and stuff so he looks like a specific he just looks like this character to me his voice the way he's speaking he changes his accent everything about his line delivery the lines that are supposed to be funny the facial expressions when people have their backs turned to him and he makes a facial expression like a huh or something like a shrug like everything works he's so flawless in this <laughs> No, he was, to use that word again. He was so perfect for this movie. And and actually, like, like doing the research, I, there was something that really cool that made me respect him so much more. Paul W.S. Anderson credited Lambert as making this, uh, like, I guess this was his first breakout job, like big movie role, a uh, directing role. He said that because of Lambert, it was so much smoother because they said his laid back attitude and positive influence helped all the people on set. I guess they said that they only had a budget to film uh, Lambert in studio in in L.A. for close-up shots. So when they when they went to Thailand, they were going to have a stand-in do the wide shots. And Lambert was like, "No, that just wouldn't feel right." So not even asking for more money, he went and filmed the extra scenes. And wow. did this, yeah, I was like, and they said that he even paid for the wrap-up party afterwards out of his own pocket. That makes me love him even more. I gained so much more. I mean, I've always loved him anyway, since freaking Highlander and everything. I was going to say there can be only one. <laughs> yeah, like there, there, there literally can be only one Christopher Lambert. So Lou says he does not believe that this beggar looking man is Lord Raiden, the god of thunder and lightning. Raiden asks Lou, how do you plan to win the tournament? 
and Lou rushes at Raiden and Raiden flips him. <laughs> Pretty basic, but funny. And then he gives him, he, he looks at him and his eyes do this little lightning crackle, which I love. And then Lou asks him, well, if you are Lord Raiden, why did you let Chan die, his brother? And of course, Raiden immediately throws it back at him, which I love. He goes, well, why didn't, Lou says, why didn't you protect him? And he goes, why didn't you? Like you left and went to America. You weren't here protecting him either, bitch. <laughs> I was just about to say, I was like, you're supposed to be the big brother. Why the hell were you whiny little bastard? <laughs> <laughs> so Lou gets pissed off and says, He's going whether they like it or not. And he storms off. Grandfather says he's not ready to Raiden. And Raiden says he knows, but there is no one else. So to me, that says it's all riding on Liu Kang, the chosen one. Why does it matter if Sonya and Johnny are there? But okay, I, whatever. <laughs> Apparently moral support. I have, I have no idea. Um, maybe Raiden was like, you know, I'm going to need a good laugh during this adventure. So we got to bring Johnny along. Right. You know, of course, you've got to have something pretty to look at. So Sonia's like, you know, she's the PNA. <laughs> Reducing her to the, to the token looker. Okay. Now, to me, one of the interesting things, and this is just a complete smart ass comment. Am I the only one that's like, who the hell is doing their lawn? Because that was some... That was an amazing looking lawn. And these people do not have a freaking lawnmower. So like, how are they out there cleaning this? That is a brilliant observation. <laughs> Walter from the Burbs would be jealous. That's how good their lawn was. Their lawn was amazing. Like, like, do they have landscapers? Are they like, like bringing in professional landscapers to take care of this lawn? Maybe that's part of the training. It's yeah. It's like, if that's training, I do not want to be a Shaolin monk because I just put <laughs> them out there with like some shears, like some little like pinking shears out there, like trimming this stuff. So I did time check and we're at about 12 minutes. And I really appreciate the fact that we've met all the main players got all their motivations in a real quick setup scenario. Bing, bang, boom, 12 minutes. We know what this is about. Let's get going. I loved that about this movie. It seemed like to me, that's like a staple of 80s and 90s action movies was like, if it's a, if it was a pure action movie, you go back and watch Van Damme movies, Stallone movies, within the first 10 to 15 minutes, you get a gist of what the hell is happening, who the characters are and yep. what this movie is about. And I love that. Yeah, you got that with Mortal Kombat. This is a quintessential action movie. So we cut to nighttime at the Chaiwan Bay at the docks. I can't pronounce that in Hong Kong. That's why I didn't write it down because I figured I was going to let you butcher it. And in this moment, when Johnny is bantering with Liu Kang, I got total Mark Harmon vibes. Young Mark Harmon, his look, the way he was speaking and delivering his, his comedic lines. This actor, really funny guy. So he shows up, Johnny Cage. He has a ridiculous amount of luggage and they look like they're expensive, like Gucci or something. He's got a whole bunch <laughs> and he unloads from a limo and he meets up with a man that we find out is Art Lean. He's a boxer. They say they know each other or who each other is and they're impressed with each other. Then Liu Kang walks by, not carrying his duffel bag. Did he leave it with the monks? What's happening there? No duffel bag to go on this journey. <laughs> I'm assuming, yeah, he probably forgot it, but at least because uh, there are some wardrobe ch wardrobe changes I will address later on. Oh, yes. We'll talk about those. <laughs> um, at least with Lou, it seems consistent. He does not seem to change anything. He's always in well... a <laughs> he loses stuff. We'll get but he there. He doesn't seem to get anything extra. We'll get there. Um, okay. So he walks by Johnny. Johnny assumes that Lou works on the docks, gives him money to load his bags onto the ship. 
Lou takes in a very condescending tone too. Lou takes the money and then he grabs one of the bags and just throws it into the water and walks off. (laughs) And then that's when Johnny says just, you know, to nobody, thank God I didn't ask him to park the car. So, so funny. I was like, oh, he reminds me of Mark Harmon so much. Johnny Cage and Raiden were like, they were the comic relief of this movie and they were so perfect. Their lines are so classic. So Sonia being baited by Kano, she and Jax have followed him to the docks. They're hiding behind some crates watching the ship roll in. The scene of this, it's too brief because I know it would have been fucking glorious had it gone on longer. This boat pulls in with these ghost ship looking uh, sails all tattered, a big dragon head on the front. You got smoke rolling in on the water behind them and strobe lights going. This is a fucking rad shot and it's real quick. I was so sad. (laughs) It was really good. And again, it goes back to that whole uh, Enter the Dragon thing with them coming into the island on the like rickety boats and everything. And it's just so freaking cool. So everybody starts to board the ship and then Sonia sees Kano pop out and get aboard. And then we see her running toward the ship and Jax is yelling her name like, where are you going? The boat, though, we see as she's running has pulled away pretty far from the dock. And the next time we see Sonia, she's not soaking wet. So I was like, well, can she fly now? <laughs> what happened there? <laughs> she's apparently a, uh, a very good jumper. Um, I didn't catch on that. Uh, my, my issue was to me, it didn't come off like Jax was trying very hard to stop her. It was just kind of like, no, Sonia, don't go. And like, you know, he's like playing on his cell phone or something while he's doing it. It's like, no, 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 you, 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 you do you, boo. You do you. Yeah, she's got nothing. She, she's dressed in black jeans and boots, a black turtleneck and her hat with her hair pulled back in a ponytail. And she has her, her gun and her walkie, right? That's it. She doesn't have a bag because she was not prepared for this trip, right? She's tracking Kano. So we'll get to that more later. <laughs> I think I have the answer solved, though. I think I do. When it comes up, All remind right. me. And I okay. think I got it. So on board the ship now, Lou who does not have his bag yet, runs into Johnny Cage, who's still carrying all his luggage. (laughs) Cage then bumps into Sonia, who puts a gun to Johnny. (laughs) That's very unnecessary. And says, where's Kano? Now, I cracked up because this is not the first time she's done this and it will not be the last. Why does she assume everybody on Earth knows who Kano is? (laughs) I'm assuming because like, you know, okay, to her, it's like when you know that celebrity that you feel everybody else should know. I meet people in the grocery store all the time that are surprised. I don't know who the hell BTS are. And I'm like, I'm a 41 year old man. Of course, I don't know who the hell BTS is. My question is, Kano's not a celebrity. He's just a criminal who killed somebody. Why does she assume everybody knows Kano? (laughs) It's just weird. All right, non-smart ass answer. Um, Can you do that without hurting yourself? (laughs) I will try. This is already like killing me trying to say it. Um, Granted, they are on a sketchy ship headed out into the middle of the sea. So probably she's thinking everybody here is part of the, I believe it's called the Black Dragon, I think is what the criminal organization that Kano is a part of. Oh, it's uh, not it's not the Foot Clan? No, no it's not the Foot Clan. Uh, they're an offshoot of the Foot Clan. <laughs> the Black Dragon is kind of more like the uh, fungus on the Foot Clan. So I'm assuming she's thinking everyone here is a criminal. Uh, and then of course, oh, okay. when you look at Johnny Cage, I mean, you see a guy on a rickety boat like that dressed the way he does. Either, either he's a criminal or he's somebody's stylist. So criminals stylist. <laughs> 
which when you look at Lou's hair, obviously that, you know, the relationship there seems like maybe Johnny is his stylist because Lou's hair is glorious. He does have some pretty poofy, beautiful hair. I did like his hair. It flows when he fights, which I appreciate. Even though Bruce Lee didn't have that long hair, it's still watching him fight with the hair flying gave me that little Bruce Lee vibe. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it was just like personality and vibe. I, I definitely did get a Bruce Lee vibe off of him with the personality. And that's the fact that he spends half of the movie with his shirt off. <laughs> that's why I thought he had the physique of Bruce Lee. But he really did. Like the definition was there. So Sonia goes below deck and she is met by Shang Sung, who says it's his boat and he is honored to finally meet Sonia again. What is it with this creepo and her? <laughs> I don't know. Even I was a little uncomfortable by the relationship between the two of them. I was like, okay, you guys got a PG-13 rating out of this because this was borderline NC-17 with the way that he was insinuating what he wanted to do to Sonia. Right? Johnny Cage and Liu Kang show up and join her, much to her chagrin because she's like, I didn't call for backup. Meh, meh, meh. <laughs> I'm like, okay, one-dimensional Sonia. I don't need anybody. I can, I'm a badass. <laughs> I really expected her to do the little with the little head bob with the I don't need no man. <laughs> so suddenly two men in identical outfits, one is blue, one is yellow, and they have face masks that are a little different. They enter. Shang Tsung calls them Scorpion and Sub-Zero. And I remember in the theater when they appear, everybody started screaming and clapping and hooting and hollering. Like it was a moment to behold. <laughs> Back in the days when people really embraced the movie going experience like they don't do now. They do a little bit, but not as much. Not you don't you don't see it like to this level. And yeah, I I, I still do that when they come on screen because it's like Sub Zero and Scorpion are two, especially Scorpion. I'm a huge Scorpion guy. I freaking love Scorpion so much. Um, yeah, they had some good albums. <laughs> Kidding, kidding. Uh, okay, you need to inter, inter, inter put the little rim shot on that one because that that that's worthy of the rim shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I just I, I loved the those characters and it just I geeked out so hard seeing that. My only problem was that you don't get enough of them in this movie. Agreed. Shang Tsung says, "Yes, they're deadly, but they are slaves under his power." And I was like, "Hmm, okay." I believe it was the line was deadliest of enemies because they are two rival ninja clans and oh. Sub-Zero, who is Bai Han, this is the original Sub-Zero, kills Scorpion's family. And so Scorpion, in seek of revenge like re against the clan, becomes basically Scorpion. Okay. Um, which makes sense now because like when I first saw it, I didn't know the mythology of Mortal Kombat that well. So I was kind of thinking like, okay, pretty sure these two dudes hate each other. Why are they working yeah. together so sub-zero so sonia points a gun at him and he touches it and it freezes and breaks in half and then scorpion's hand opens up and a little monster snapping guy starts to come out and screech just as lord raiden comes zipping into the room and puts stop to it i have to point this out this is where i'm going to nerd out in a bad way uh-oh 
This to me, the, the organic creature in Scorpion's hand is the same feeling I have with Tobey Maguire having organic webbing in Spider-Man. It pisses me off because it is not what he does. It's cool, yes, but Scorpion does not have a creature living in his body. It is oh. No, it, it's he just uses, it's a dagger attached to a chain or a string. That is his weapon. That is all he does. That and he's got swords. He does not have a living creature. So like okay. when I saw that, I was like, what the fuck, dude? This is like totally not, uh, it pissed me off so bad. Oh my gosh. Okay. Done. Settle I'm down. Done. Settle down. <laughs> Wipe the sweat off your brow. Relax. <laughs> hold, hold me back. Hold me back. <laughs> no, I had no idea, you know, about any of that. So for me, not knowing that I just went with it. I was like, okay. And the special effects, the, that's one of the worst ones in the movie is really- the, the creature. Cause you can tell it's completely fake. Oh yeah, it doesn't hold up. It looks, it doesn't even no. hold up to like, you know, sci-fi channel standards to these days. It was dark man level special effects. I was like, bro, <laughs> come on. Okay, now let's not say things that can't be taken back. <laughs> you hate that movie so much that you're just going to cheap shot it every chance you get. Oh, I'll tell you what. So Mike listened to the episode because I didn't let him listen to it ahead of time after we rewatched the movie. And he goes, I still love the movie. And I'm like, you're that's fine. You can love it, but you're wrong. It's not a good movie, you know? So that's fine. I'll argue with everybody. You're all wrong. (laughs) You can all sit in your wrongness. That's fine. (laughs) I bask in the glory of my wrongness. So Lord Raiden comes in in this zap of light, which is really cool and appears. He knocks both of them. He zaps Scorpion and Sub-Zero, making them fly backwards. And he says, that's enough. He tells Shang Tsung that they cannot continue to attack his fighters before the tournament. That's not fair. And it's expressly forbidden by the emperor. So that is when in the movie you go, oh, Shang Tsung isn't the head bad guy. He's answering to the emperor. Got it. I can't remember if at the time of this movie's release, if Mortal Kombat 2 had come out, the game. Yes. Um, okay, because I, I always did kind of bother me that they did not, they just call him the emperor. They never really mention his name, Shao Kahn. Just calling him the emperor is like, you probably should have like, you know, given given us nerds a little bit more. So Shang Tsung points out Raiden has no dominion on his island once they arrive. And Sonya asks, finally, what tournament? (laughs) Like, yeah, bitch, you were tricked. Shang Tsung says, here's where you need to put that creepy shit back in your pants, Shang Tsung. He says, you've been chosen, Sonya, much to my delight. What the fuck, creeper? It's yeah, that is definitely you're getting some Bill Cosby vibes off of him. Uh, it's but, so weird. And then he leaves. He just says that and leaves. <laughs> it, but it's like, the even though it's creepy, the way he delivers his lines are so freaking perfect. I mean, like the man. Oh, he's is, amazing. Like I, I would let him creep on me. That's how perfect <laughs> he is. All right. So this is where we get uh, the next scene here is where we get an egregious background thing. And I'm sure you've picked up on it. And maybe not. I never noticed until I was researching for this watch. And I did the research first. So I caught it when I was watching the movie. Up on deck, Raiden and the three stooges there are having a conversation. They're having a come to Jesus meeting as he explains everything. Is, if is you it more of a come to Raiden meeting? <laughs> come to Raiden meeting. So you look behind them and the sky is black and filled with stars. This is fabric on an L.A. soundstage with lights in the fabric. And you know you how you can tell is you can see ripples in the fabric. If you look close, it's not a smooth backdrop. It's fabric hanging. Huh. <laughs> 
And if you've ever seen just, you know, curtains hanging, how they bubble out and ripple, that's what it looks like. And if you pay attention, there are several times when it's very obvious. Okay. I, I never paid attention to that. I think I was too busy looking at the characters and filming yes. and watching the plot of the movie like most people, most normal people <laughs> do when we go to the movies. Pay attention on your next watch. It's pretty obvious once you're looking for it. So he's explaining they need to put aside worrying about their ego. I'm looking at you, Johnny. You need to put aside revenge. That's looking at you, Sonia. And you need to put aside worrying about your enemy. And that's Lou. He tells them this is a sacred mission that they're on. They've been chosen to defend the realm of Earth in a tournament called Mortal Kombat. My question was, once again... Why does it matter if anybody else is there, if Liu Kang is the chosen one? But okay, I'm rolling with it. <laughs> We've already explained that. It's, it's, I'm it's rolling it, with it. you know, John, Johnny is the comic relief and, you know, Sonya is the tits. He says Earth is one of many realms. Another one is called Outworld. And that one is ruled by an immortal crowning himself the emperor. Now the emperor seeks new worlds to conquer. And Johnny asks the obvious question here. If he's so powerful, why doesn't he just invade us? <laughs> Good question. Well, we get an answer. Yes. Raiden says in order to enter the realm of Earth, the emperor has his demon sorcerer Shang Tsung and his warriors win 10 straight victories in Mortal Kombat. They've already won nine. No pressure, right? <laughs> One of my issues with that, okay, you're on your ninth Mortal Kombat. Why the hell is Shang Sun so adamant about getting Sonya and Johnny and Liu on the boat? It's like, okay, are, are you that cocky that you're like, oh, I can know I can easily beat these people. When we see the other fighters throughout this movie, it just would have been like, yeah, let's just let them represent Earth. And we do see that later. There's a handful of just regular Jamokes showing up to be part of the fighting. Oh yeah. Hey, yeah. When we get to those people, I'm I'm going <laughs> off. I'm you're gonna have to hold me back again. I'm literally gonna say, hold my beer. So Sonia asks Raiden, why us? Raiden says, because he's looked into the souls of all the fighters, and one of you three will decide the outcome of the tournament. Again, people keep saying, lose the chosen one. And now you've made it more obvious by saying it's one of you three. Pretty sure it's not going to be Johnny or Sonia. So the fate of Bill, I love this. He says, the fate of billions will depend on you. And then he laughs and then he goes, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> I literally wrote that note down too of how I love the little laugh and sorry part. The way he does it is so beautiful. Yes, it's so subtle, but perfection. Yeah, because it's not like, like a belly laugh. It's just a little, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so Lou asks about Shang Tsung. Raiden says, if you challenge him now, you will die and you will lose your soul. You're not ready. I just didn't understand at what point would Lou become ready? At this moment in the movie, it's like he's either a good fighter or he's not. What is he possibly going to learn between now and I don't know. Watching it the first few times, I kind of thought the same thing. I think now looking at it, like getting more perspective and understanding how these movies work, learning how to come up with excuses for you. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I kind of assume that it's like he's not prepared emotionally and physically. He's going in based off of, I want to kill Shang Tsung because of the killing my brother. He's not prepared to be the defender of Earthrealm. He's just like, he's just an angry boy who wants to beat up his, you know, the bully kind of thing. No, that makes sense. So now we get a beautiful shot of everybody arriving at the island. All the fighters are unloading. 
And like I said, we just see all these average bros just with their knapsacks. Just they don't look like anything special just entering onto the island. They look like the kind of guys that should be fighting a tournament at a high school gymnasium. Or or like they have an underground fight club. Yeah, like that's you know, like they're all there to like, you know, hit the bar and then punch each other in the face and then get drunk later. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we see everybody has a bag or a suitcase, all these regular guys, except Lou still doesn't have his bag. Sonia, obviously, because she wasn't prepared to come on this trip, has nothing. So Lou, we see here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start nitpicking now is wearing his khakis and a light knit shirt. Sonia's got on her black jeans and turtleneck. Her hat is now gone. Johnny Cage has his grip of luggage. <laughs> he's carrying all of it by himself. I love the scene where he's like trying to get out of the boat with the <laughs> luggage and he just goes and <laughs> tips right the fuck over into the water. Yeah, that's hilarious. So he comes up behind Sonia and Lou and Lou says he doesn't know what's going on. But what if all the legends were true? And as he walks off, Johnny Cage goes, what legends? I love that line because when Lou says it, I'm literally saying the same thing. You're asking this question to people who don't know the legends. And so for Johnny to say it, I'm like, that's exactly what the audience is saying. What legends? Yes. And here's my other add on to that. Clearly the legends are true because we see that this is all real and plays out. And the monks in China have it all right apparently are all correct about all the legends and all this Lord Raiden and the fighting and everything, right? All true. Why is the rest of the world not on board with this religion if they are correct? <laughs> if they are clearly right, all the legends are true. Why are none of us privy to this? That's not fair. That's not right. I think there's a lot of stubborn people out there that don't want to handle the truth. Like, you know, the fact that Darkman is an amazing movie, you know, so it's like, it's, it's, it's one of those things that some people just can't handle the truth. I got nothing. <laughs> So they now have to walk up a ludicrous amount of steps, stone steps up the side of this mountain or whatever, uh, to get to their destination. And it's inside this very tall, ornately carved mountaintop situation. I absolutely love Johnny going like the whole from the moment you see Johnny with the luggage to even like him going up the stairs with the luggage. That whole sequence of him with the luggage is hilarious. And the fact that like no one is still willing to help him with this. It's a good bit. Yes, he stumbles on the stairs. It's funny. So they go inside and they pass by Princess Katana. And again, that was Talisa Soto sitting off to the side. Shang Tsung comes in and we see a statue near Katana come to life and it's kind of camouflage. It's terrible, terrible CGI. Shang Tsung addresses the statue, calls him reptile or the creature now who's come out of the statue, tells him to keep an eye on Princess Katana and keep her away from the humans. So a couple things. Number one, this is where you can kind of see where they could have had the budding romance because Liu Kang and Katana do that little sultry look between the two of them right here when they stop for a second. You were expecting like, you know, like Liu or Katana to like, you know, buy him a drink or something and have like the waiter send it over. <laughs> right. It was total bedroom eyes. It was kind of cool. I was like, oh, I wanted that romance. <laughs> Katana, though, gave me young Tia Carrera only prettier vibes like she was gorgeous. Loved her. She was an actress that I, again, I had a crush. There was a few people I had a crush on during this movie. Um, That's fine. Was Raiden because of his hair? Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, in those eyes. Oh, oh, <laughs> but no, it's like like with uh, Talitha Soto, it's like 
she was one of those actresses that I really loved her and I don't recall what else she, she didn't really grow go on to be anything big and it kind of surprised me because she wasn't a bad actress she was really pretty yeah it just seemed like she just never caught a break and it just it kind it's of it's a shame yeah. yeah it really is because I absolutely loved her so we cut now to the interior of a banquet hall where everyone has assembled and this is a great use of money for the set the set is so cool giant pillars the gargoyle statues the throne the lighting everything about this interior set is just amazing looking i love it the sets in this movie are freaking gorgeous they help set the mood they they make you feel like you are on this island they they spared like no expense on building these sets set designer gets so much freaking credit for me you you earn brownie points set designer You've changed his life with that. I hope so. I hope I brought a smile on his face. Like he's listening to this right now (laughs) and just being like, you know, I'm having a hard day. My life sucks. I just, you know, car won't start. Wife's leaving me. Oh, he loves my set design. I'm good today. Thank God I got a mention on Let's Talk Turkeys. So Katana, we see is off to the side and she gives Liu Kang another look. I was so bummed that there was no romance. I'm just going to keep saying that. She had the best come fuck me eyes I've ever seen. For real. (laughs) I would have. I mean, that's how good they were. I'd buy that for a dollar. (laughs) So the door shuts and we see Lord Raiden being left out in the cold. He can't come in. How he was even there on the island at all, I didn't understand. He had no dominion on the island, I thought, but he he's there. Well, I mean, dominion just means, I'm assuming, like, okay, he has no say over what happened, but he'd still be there and, like, participate. Moral support. <laughs> yeah, moral support. He, he was the cheerleader. But it's like, at the same time, you do feel bad for him. And it's like, okay, you're not going to let him partake in the banquet. He can't eat. He doesn't need to eat. He's a god. I'm sure gods even like to go to McDonald's every now and then. So Shang Tsung and Sub-Zero and Scorpion and a bunch of other warriors, just generic warriors, enter the room. What's what's awesome about this is this is another classic scene in a movie where you can automatically pick out who the expendable henchmen are. <laughs> You're just like, there's no way any of those people are ever going to win a fight. No, they're all dressed up with like, they look like uh, extras from a Sinbad movie, like... Uh, Jason and the Argonauts or something. They just, it's, they're all just, yeah, no name, no face wrapped up in their outfits. Their face is covered. They really do. It's like, it's like a ninja crossed with like, you said, like a Sinbad movie. And not the delightful actor from Jingle All the Way. (laughs) That's not the Sinbad we're referring to. So he says that they are all here for Mortal Kombat. And in the morning, the combat will begin. He adds that some of them will even have the honor of fighting Prince Goro, the reigning champion. He tells them to treasure these moments as they will be their last. (laughs) It's so ominous and good. (laughs) So he says, and now for a taste of things to come. I do want to point out there are several quotes within this movie that to this day, I still use these quotes in random conversations. Okay. That is one of them. I will always say that with the, and now for a taste of things to come. I just absolutely love it. Well, I like that once he says that, then immediately the drum sound starts and the music starts and the action kicks in like you're not waiting. But it was really funny that all the generic henchmen guys come down and everybody jumps up from their tables when they were in the middle of eating and they flip all these tables over and all the food goes flying. And then after this scene, like after the fighting is done, there's no food or anywhere. Like it just magically got cleaned up, I guess. (laughs) 
you didn't see it, but there's probably like that one, you know, fat henchman that like, you know, he can't do the martial arts. So they're like, well, what do you do? Well, you're just going to go around and clean up. He's the cafeteria janitor. Exactly. So the fighting starts with Sub-Zero fighting a random guy. And it's funny because the random guy is getting real cocky, doing all his opening warm-up moves and huh, huh, and like making all these fighting noises and stuff. And he doesn't last two seconds because he just goes flying through the air, like with a kick, like he's going to hit Sub-Zero. And Sub-Zero just hits him with a freezing ball of ice or something, and it freezes him, and he shatters into a bunch of pieces when he hits the wall. It's a, a, a great like buildup to the fight and everything. I don't know about you, but my number one complaint was they're at least like 15, 20 feet apart. And he doesn't go for that air kick, that jump kick until he's like another, like, again, 15 feet away from him. How right. the hell is he making it that far? Yes. I was like, he's flying through the air for an awful long time. That doesn't seem right. And also it was such a letdown. Sub-Zero can just make this freezing ball and hit you wherever you are and you're dead. Like, that's not much of a fight. <laughs> No, I mean, I understand why they did it to kind of build up the anticipation of like, okay, Sub-Zero is a total badass. Yeah, we're letting yeah. these, you know, cocky uh, Earth Realmers decide. We're going to call them Dirt Ballers. Dirt Ballers uh, aware that you're not going to defeat Sub-Zero. I didn't that, think that, of it that way. Yeah, it's like, that makes sense. But also at the same time, it kind of makes me think, why am I going to join Shang Tsung's group knowing that I can be one of these expendable people that, you know what, Joe, we're just going to kill you today as an example. Right? Like I don't a, want that job. Yeah, no, that's a cult. <laughs> so Shang Tsung says, flawless victory. So also, even though I'm trying to show you what Sub-Zero can do, so you're all quaking in your boots, I also felt like, why am I showing you what you're in for? Wouldn't it be better to give the element of surprise and not know what you're up against so you don't have time to plan? If you're a good villain, yes, that would make sense. You know, like the smart villain would be like, yeah, I'm not going to kill my hand too soon. Shang Tsung is cocky as hell. Yeah, he is. I mean, like he's inviting the three people that have the possibility of saving Earthrealm to the island. Again, why would you even do that? And then it's like, oh, no, I'm also going to show you like what I can do. Either he's just too cocky or right now he's just so all the blood flow from his brain is currently still in his penis because he's thinking about Sonya. That's <laughs> the only other thing I could be thinking of. So he turns and walks off Shang Tsung and Lou wants to run after him. Johnny Cage reminds him what Raiden said about him not being ready yet. Sonya says, well, Shang Tsung knows where Kano is. And so she runs after him. She follows Shang Tsung and uh, Lou and Johnny Cage show up. She tells them she doesn't need their help. I don't need backup. Once again, they all go inside this, this mountain. It looks so dangerous. There's long, narrow bridge walkways inside. And I got Masters of the Universe flashbacks with these long, perilous drops inside. <laughs> we don't need that inside. There has been several movies I have been watching recently that again go back to my comment in Masters of the Universe is why the hell are these narrow walkways randomly placed over places and there's no safety railings? Why the hell does this exist? Who is the contractor that they are getting to build these places? There needs to be a freaking lawsuit because there's got to be so many accidents happening. So they hear a monster growl and they see a big shadow of Goro which we don't know it's him but that's who it is and at least four arms in this shadow. Johnny Cage says to Sonia, why don't you go ahead and find out what that was? <laughs> 
I love that because she's like, she's been such a bitch to him since she's shown up. And I just kind of love that whole like, okay, no, you go. You're the badass. You do it. Exactly. Then we cut to an interior dining chamber where Kano is sitting at this big table loaded with food and drinks. And he's talking to Prince Goro, who is that giant monster. We get more badass set design. This room is so fucking cool. The only problem I had with the set was there was a couple of pieces of food that almost looked like it was actually plastic. Like the reflection off of the lighting made it look like it was plastic and wasn't real. And and the only reason I I point that out, I hate that, is because uh, slowly but surely you are converting me into you where I'm nitpicking (laughs) things that I should not be nitpicking. (laughs) Don't don't be me. (laughs) Don't be jaded. So we see that uh, Lou, Sonia, and Johnny Cage are eavesdropping from above through this conversation. So Kano's like rambling about whatever. And Goro tells Kano he is the general of the armies of Outworld and prince of the subterranean realm of Shokan or Shokan. Was that something of lore like from the game? Is that right? Yeah, uh, that's something that I learned later on that Goro comes from a race of people. He's actually got a sister. Uh, there's another character in the game. I believe he shows up in three, volume three, maybe later called Kintaro. That looks a little bit more um, kind of like Goro, but like a cross between Goro and a tiger. Really cool. Okay. There's also like some centaur characters. I mean, like the, this, the mythology alone is worth hitting like Wikipedia or like the, the Mortal Kombat wiki just to look up because there's so much cool stuff in it. Oh, it's a rabbit hole. It's hard not to fall down in there and be lost. <laughs> it, really it, it reminds me a lot of Star Wars, just because there's just so much mythology to it that they built into this game that is so much fun. Um, I don't know about you, but I always find it hilarious that because I was like, when I'm watching this scene and I'm seeing uh, Kano just chow down on the freaking turkey leg. I'm like, why is it that these underworld bad guys and not just underworld, just bad guys in general, because I remember this from like Lord of the Rings, they always eat like friggin' pigs, like juice dripping down all over their face. And it's just, it is and they're so- chomping while they talk and they're chewing with a mouthful while they're talking and food spitting out of their mouth. That is like so disgusting. I'm like, I, I because- hate seeing that. It's because only a villain would possibly have those kind of manners. <laughs> No manners whatsoever, right? That just tells you how villainous Kano really is. Yeah. (laughs) Now it makes me like whenever I go to a restaurant and I don't see someone using a napkin, I'm like, you must be some kind of psychopathic serial killer or something, dude. (laughs) You're you're a villain. So we get some good close-ups here of Goro, the puppet, and and the anim- or animatronic or whatever you want to call it. And again, when his mouth is moving and his eyes are moving and, and stuff, it's very painful. Like it's not the best, but it's cool just to see him, I think. They just, they tried. <laughs> I think what helps is the design of the character is kind of cool enough that you can kind of like forgive it because the design reminds me a lot of if you remember the the old Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Kickboxer and the bad guy with the like the bald head and the freaking ponytail and stuff. He reminds me a lot of that guy. Okay, I can see that. So Shang Tsung shows up and interrupts them and tells Kano he is to fight Sonya before he can get paid and leave, but he is not to harm her, only humiliate her. And (laughs) this is where we got to me, creeper level 10. This is where he kicked it up. He says, I have plans for my beautiful Sonya. 
you need to put her in your dungeon or what, bro? This is creepy. Yeah, that or he's going to give her a jello pudding pop or something. So Shang Tsung next tells Goro, Liu Kang is there and he must handle him carefully. And he adds, Princess Katana is 10,000 years old and rightful heir to the throne of Outworld because she is the emperor's adopted daughter. So she must not join Liu Kang or, you know, join forces with the humans because that could be a problem. And Goro says, I don't fail. So no problem. I got this. My takeaway from that whole little speech was Katana is 10,000 years old. That bitch needs to be the poster child for Oil of Olay because she clearly moisturizes. I'm not typically into older chicks, um, at least, you know, not 10,000 years older. I, I'll go like, you know, maybe 10, 10,000 years older. She's pretty smoking. I, I, I will break that rule for her. So the three caballeros here, they've been eavesdropping the whole time. Lou sees Princess Katana at the end of a tunnel and follows her only to lose her. Now, before we get into the tunnel, when you're watching all of this stuff and they're up there and they're eavesdropping, are you sitting here wondering who the hell is responsible for replacing all of these candles in this room? There are so many freaking candles. They're almost down to the very bottom. This has got to be a shit job to go through this, this, this cavern and replace uh, these candles in these tunnels because that is just ridiculous. Yes, everything on this island is lit with candles. And I was thinking, whose job is it? It's got to be the second guy who lost some fights in round nine. The first guy has to sweep up in the jan- you know, janitor in the cafeteria. Second guy, candle duty, right? <laughs> that, that's like the only other job I can see on this island that is terrible is the guy that's got to wipe Goro's ass. So like, that's got to be the number one terrible job to have. I know they need to go on to one of those catalog websites and order him that long stick that allows you to reach around and wipe your ass if you can't reach it. So now he's in this tunnel and he loses her, but he sees this really cool cave that's lit with blue lighting. And I like that about this movie. Different places in the island get different kinds of lighting to kind of give you the feel that you're somewhere else. This one's all lit up in blue. He sees the camouflaged reptile and it's too late because it already, it sprays him in the face with like reptile spit or whatever (laughs) and then runs off. That's actually a signature move of reptile in the game is the acid spit. Acid? Yeah, like in the game, it's acid. Uh, Obviously, in the movie, it wasn't. It was like hairspray or something. (laughs) (laughs) It was just supercharged spit. So Johnny Cage and Sonya show up and they ask where, Lou's like, where did Katana go? And they're like, I don't know. We cut to a long haul of stone archway doorways covered in the thickest cobwebs I have ever seen in a movie. Like they look like a wall. They're so thick, right? These cobwebs. So as they're walking through, Johnny has to peel them open and step through them. Like that's how thick they are. And Johnny says, Katana went this way. As they're going through these, what? Does she have the ability to walk through walls? Because these cobwebs have not been disturbed. She did not go this way. (laughs) Teleportation powers, I guess. I have no idea. My issue was, and you know me, I am incredibly arachnophobic. So the second I would have saw these cobwebs, I would have been like, nope, I'm done. Going home. This this, this is done. <laughs> Outworld can have Earth at this point. Screw this. We're not fighting anymore. Hell on Earth? Big deal. I got hemorrhoids, to quote Roach from Demon Knight. Yeah. So they wind up back 
they made a circle. They wind up back at Goro and Kano's dining room, but it's empty now. They get bum rushed by some of those generic warrior henchmen. The music kicks in and goosebumps are going. I'm so excited. But they make short work of kicking all of their asses. And then I really like that they show them all in their finishing pose when they're done fighting each one real quick. I love that. I do want to point out a couple of things that annoyed me during the fight. So first off, when the fight kicks off and the henchmen are coming down the stairs, I kind of feel like it's just, again, cocky henchman move number one. Why the hell are you going to do a jump kick in the air over the people you're attacking? Why? To show off. <laughs> Look what I can do. Look what I can do. This is why these people lose. Stop being so cocky. And the other thing that bothered me was when Johnny sends the guy into Sonia and she does that clothesline and the guy does the little somersault. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm a lifelong wrestling fan. I know it's fake. At least when someone does a clothesline in there and they do the flip, it's like it is a 300 pound guy, solid muscle hitting someone. And like, that makes sense. This skinny bitch stands there, extends her arm and this 230, 240 pound guy comes running into it and flips over again. It's like, what the hell? How is this possible? She must be magic. Like there's something about her we don't know. She Shang Tsung wants the magic pussy. She's got magic arms and fighting abilities clearly we don't know about. If this is what Shang Tsung is interested in, then obviously this woman is like solid muscle that we are not seeing. So as they stand around now in their finishing poses, congratulating themselves, Lord Raiden shows up and he's sitting on the steps doing the slow clap for them. <laughs> it's so funny. So he says, brilliant. Now show me what you plan to do about them. And then like another dozen or so henchmen just come running in and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> that, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen that fight, but I just love that Raiden's just sitting there like, no, 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 go. You, you, you do you, you handle this. I want to see what you can do, you cocky little bastards. <laughs> <laughs> but he does stop them from approaching by zapping a little lightning from his eyes and stuff. And he's all, uh-uh, I don't think so. <laughs> And he says that like at least three times in this movie. And I wrote down every single one because I don't know why this happened in Masters of the Universe too, when Skeletor or somebody said, I don't think so. It's so funny to me. It's like such a definitive statement. He's just like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> like, you're not going to question that. You're like, okay. <laughs> it's the way he delivers it is just amazing. So good at that. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You don't mess with Raiden. Raiden, Raiden going to fuck you up. So he leads all three of them out of there, tells them that they've seen what they'll be facing in the tournament. Goro and Shang Tsung can choose to challenge whomever they want as former champions. They reserve that right. He warns them fighting Shang Tsung is like fighting a legion because he gets all of his power from the souls that he's accumulated from the warriors he's beaten. Now that doesn't seem like much of a power to me. If you're a great sorcerer, why do you need to rely on the souls of all the vanquished warriors? <laughs> Little bit of a coward. That, that's what makes a great villain. All villains, all great villains are cowards that have to rely on like terrible henchmen and these powers that you don't really need to be using. It's, it's, it's what makes a great villain. Plus it's like, how can you hate that man? He's just, he's glorious. <laughs> So the next day, the tournament begins in an outdoor arena where Shang Tsung addresses everyone, saying that from now on, the entire island is fair game. I love that concept, that it could happen anytime, anywhere. 
Because you're like, okay, game on, like literally. <laughs> he pits Liu Kang against another man and he announces Mortal Kombat is now beginning. So the two men fight and at one point even use some bamboo looking poles. And it's really good choreo. Like their fight is really cool to watch. It's a lot of fun. It's and at one point they even mano a mano and just like our fist fighting. <laughs> I want to point out two things. One, all all the fights, almost all the fights in this movie are amazing. They're great fights. They're the good martial arts movie. There are about three fights to me that stand out as just three of not just the best in the movie, but three of my favorite martial arts scenes in any movie. I like of all those. time. I will point them out when we get to them. So this wasn't one of them. <laughs> this was not one of them. But is that what you're saying? This, this I do want to point out. I want to, I do want to point out that in this scene, there's this cool little connection between this actor. Uh, his one name that is, Liu Kang fights. Yeah, the one that Liu Kang fights. He doesn't have a name. He's just, I think he's credited as like monk or something like that, fighting monk. The stunt actor's name is uh, Hakeem Alston. Him and the actor that plays Scorpion, Chris Casamasa, they both were on a show, a short-lived two-season show called WMAC Masters. It was like a cross between professional wrestling, power range. It was like a kid's show introducing people to martial arts. If anyone who's ever interested in martial arts, it is a fun show to go watch. It is really, really cool. I love the fact that they got these two people to play these characters because they're real martial artists. Was it American made or was it like Japanese or... It's American made. And, and the, the oh. cool thing about the show is that there's a connection because how you kept mentioning Robin Shu reminds you of Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. The host of WMSA Masters was Shannon Lee, Bruce Lee's daughter. Oh my God. It was really just a fun little show to watch. Uh, I mean, like obviously choreographed, but it's just really cool. And I love right. that you got him to do this. And going back and watching at this time, there's a character in Mortal Kombat called Cyrax. He was a part of the same ninja clan as Sub-Zero. My headcanon says Hakeem's character is Cyrax because he looks almost like it. Like Cyrax, I believe, was actually black uh, and had the dreadlocks. So it's like, oh, I, could, okay. I could almost picture that like if they could have like done it just right, that that would have been a great little connection to the video games, like introduction of the character of Cyrax. I just wanted to point that out. I'm sorry I nerded out. We can continue. <laughs> but, well, unfortunately, he doesn't last long because Lou knocks him out. <laughs> And this is where we get the, you know, non-human terrible death because he just knocks him out, beats him. And we assume he's killed him because he's laying on the ground just like a dead fish. Shang Tsung goes over to him and just says, your soul is mine. And he sucks the soul out of him. (laughs) That is quote number two that I continue to use to this day. The your soul is mine. I'm just just trying to think of the scenario in which that's appropriate in everyday life for you to say that to somebody. Let's just say I have a very complicated life. (laughs) So he sucks the soul out and he says, fatality. And he walks off. Another great video game quote. And appropriate. So later at another, because fatality means you died. And flawless victory means somebody won without taking any hits. It was perfect. That is actually something that comes up a lot in the movie that bothers me when he says flawless victory a few times. Yes, it only applies once correctly. (laughs) Yeah, most of the time he says it, it's like, no, it's not flawless. They got their ass handed to them several times. So later at another outdoor arena, Sonia, who has now clearly cut her turtleneck into a tank top, or she was wearing this tank top under the turtleneck. 
And she's clearly cut her jeans into Daisy Duke cutoff shorts because it's the same high-waisted jean with the belt and they're all ragtag tattered cut off. So clearly she cut her jeans off. Yes. Tank top questionable. Maybe she had it on under the turtleneck, but the jeans, no way. She cut those off. She gets ready to fight. Kano shows up and taunts her and then they have their fight and again when you're watching the scene now knowing the trivia i really wish she could have gotten more training time in because it's pretty sad that she has to beat him and it looks this terrible like there's no way she beats him in real life <laughs> no it, it, it is probably it, this is to me the worst fight of the entire movie and, and now that i know the behind the scene part i i don't blame her that she didn't have time to fully train um yeah Apparently, you can but, see the potential. Yeah, she, she doesn't do bad. Like if you could see, like if she would have had more training, she probably could have done it. But she just, because of this, it kind of hurt it. Like she wasn't a believable Sonya. Because Sonya is a real badass in the game. So it just well, kind of hurts. That's why this is even more of a problem, how she actually finishes Kano. She goes into a handstand at the base of his feet and flips her legs over his shoulder on the front of his body. And he's standing there holding her legs oh oh sonia's got me really he doesn't just toss her right the fuck off that's so silly she flips him from this position now that that is that is an actual move in the game that she does but there's no way he lets that happen really no no you're not going to convince me (laughs) well i mean you have to remember this is the same woman that just clotheslined a guy into doing a somersault so obviously she's got some inner strength she's got the core Well, she gets him down on the ground. Her thighs are around his head, you know, like she's going to snap his neck. And Shang Tsung says, finish him. He begs Sonya to give him a break. Kano does. And she goes, okay. And we hear the crack that she snaps his neck, but we don't see it because, you know, PG-13. It's so dumb because no, just no. Just it's now. bad. It's bad for a number of reasons. The only okay, I, I don't have a problem with her performing the move, the handstand into the flip. To me, that's not the problem. The problem is the way that the move pulls off is terrible because yeah, it's like in the game when she does it, it's like in professional wrestling, which they call a hurricanrana, where you basically do almost the same thing and the person literally flips over your body. This was just more of a side tumble. Yeah, terrible. The neck breaking. She didn't even have him in her thighs. It was more like a around the knees and the calves which again those muscles are not going to be strong enough to snap a person's neck you gotta have them in the thighs yeah it's so fucking dumb i was like yeah this this whole fight scene was just like cringe all right everyone i think that's as good a stopping point as any for part one like i said at the beginning next week we'll be dropping part two for mortal Kombat, wrapping this bad boy up so thank you so much for listening and until next time goodbye Hey listeners, Drive-In Dave here saying we know you have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts, so we want to thank you so much for listening to ours. Please be sure to follow us on all your social media platforms. Join us in the Bad Movie Conversation. We're on Facebook with a Let's Talk Turkeys page, as well as a discussion group where you can chat with other people who also love bad movies. We're also on Instagram at Let's Talk Turkeys, all one word, plus we're on Twitter with the handle at Gobble Podcast. That's G-O-B-B-L-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And of course, you can always email us direct 
at let's talk turkeys all one word at yahoo.com you're still here it's over go home go